Hello and welcome to the Business of Betting podcast. Today I'm joined by Jason Trost, the CEO and founder of Smarkets. Jason, thanks very much for coming on. Before we get into this episode, make sure you follow us on Twitter, at BettingPod, and check out the website, businessofbetting.com. Guest suggestions are much appreciated. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Betfair Proprietary Limited. Betfair operates a betting exchange and is licensed in the Northern Territory of Australia. Residents of Australia can join Betfair by visiting betfair.com.au and support this podcast by using promo code BOBPOD. Please gamble responsibly. So thank you for listening and I hope you enjoy this episode of the Business of Betting podcast. Today I'm joined by Jason Trost, the CEO and founder of Smarkets. Jason, thanks very much for coming on. Thanks very much for having me. So I want to talk a little bit about your stock trading, equity trading background and your time in the financial markets before you got to building Smarkets. Can you tell us a little bit about sort of your trajectory in that world and then ultimately what led you to, to jump ship and, and build your own uh, prediction market and, and betting exchange? Yeah, cool. I, I actually had quite a technical father. We had computers before everybody else. And one of the early services that we had, this is dating me now, but it was called Prodigy, which was a precursor to AOL. And on Prodigy, it had one of these functions that would let you place electronic trades on stock. And my dad kind of showed me how to use it. And I think I was like in third, fourth, fifth grade. And I was buying and selling stock, uh, very, very small scale, you know, 10, 50, 100 shares, nothing crazy. But ever since then, I was always fascinated by this idea that you could place an electronic transaction and kind of make or lose money. And uh, for there, I kind of, you know, between elementary school and high school, I kind of stuck with it. Um, uh, when I went to university, I studied computer science. And my first job at a university, I was actually a stock trader. Um, I didn't know if I wanted to be a software engineer per se, so I just... You know, there was, I, I went to school at Northwestern, which is in Chicago. There's lots of trading outfits in Chicago. And, uh, yeah, I became a trader. And uh, when I was trading, uh, somebody showed me this website that would let you trade the presidential election. Uh, this site was called Trade Sports. It's about 15 years ago now. And I thought, wow, this is such a cool concept that you basically can take electronic trading and not only trade stocks, but you can trade events. And in this case, the political election outcome, which I was really passionate about. So it went all the way from, you know, my bedroom when I was in fifth grade to trading stocks and prodigy to uh, electronic markets uh, as a professional. And then this idea that you could trade an event um, really kind of resonated with me. So you're probably not the first trader or someone in the financial world thinking about prediction markets and and betting exchanges and how that might apply to things like sports or political events. Take me back to 2004, the Bush election, and essentially your path from what you were doing towards uh, you know, the, the massive undertaking from a technology perspective and also uh, even an entrepreneur, entrepreneur perspective to, to build markets. Yeah. So, so, so I was, I don't know, 21, 22 years old, very passionate about politics. I was reading I don't know, five, ten articles a day on Bush versus Kerry. Um, for those of you that don't remember, this is Bush's second term. Uh, John Kerry, the senator who became secretary of state, was running against him. 
And I was just obsessed with Bush losing and, you know, I was following the race very closely. And this prediction market would basically track the news in real time, 24 hours a day. You know, for most of the race, Kerry was 48 percent and Bush is 52 percent. Kerry would do something stupid. And like I remember very famously, he went windsurfing, which, you know, out of the controversy of today seems like a quaint thing to get upset about. Uh, But that was a controversy uh, 15 years ago, people going windsurfing because (laughs) it was considered elitist, if you can believe that. Um, And, uh, you know, so he went from like 48% to 45%. And so, you know, I thought it was amazing that you could basically synthesize all this news. You know, you had all these traders around the world who knew who knew who was trading on this platform. I wasn't trading on this platform. Uh, but I thought that the information that you got from it was so valuable. It's real time. It's biasless, biasless. It's without bias uh, because people are betting real money. Um, and this concept just really got its hooks into me. Um, but the aha entrepreneurial moment for me was I was passionate about this. I thought that there's got to be a wide audience of people that are fascinated, you know, because the the election was on the news every day. You know, everybody was interested in who's going to win this election. But uh, I had a degree in computer science and I was a professional trader and I couldn't understand this interface. And I thought if somebody like me can't understand this, who's motivated, loves this stuff, uh, can't understand it, there's got to be a better way to do it. And so that really is the kernel of, of founding this company. So it was basically trying to take these taking a prediction market. I prefer to call them event markets. It's a little bit less sexy, but people get hung up on that word prediction and, uh, and apply it to, you know, basically, uh, try to do prediction markets. Well, um, the, the reason I ended up founding smarkets was my co-founder was in London. Um, and he worked in the city in a, at a financial trading firm and two of the guys that traded with him, uh, were big Betfair customers and Betfair was doing very well back then. This is 2005, 2006. And, uh, you know, Betfair was kind of setting the world on fire um, from the sports betting industry. But but the people he traded with from the financial perspective, again, said the interface is not that great. The tech wasn't that great. The transaction fees are very expensive. And so I got together with my undergrad buddy and decided, why don't we bring financial technology to uh, event trading or betting exchanges, uh, if you like. So one of the questions that immediately jumps out to me is why isn't sports betting – like a financial product and I guess that's probably one of the challenges you faced early on and analyzing that question how did you think about it back then and and what have you learned about that whole topic yeah that's I've been thinking about that question for 12 years now which is which is kind of a crazy amount of time I mean there's lots of reasons but I I would say the main reason uh, is most of the people involved in sports betting not all but most people in sports betting come from an entertainment or retail or traditional background. You know, so all the big bookmakers in the UK, as far as I know, except for maybe Betfair, uh, have a retail um, past. Even Bet365, you know, they had a bunch of uh, physical presences, present uh, physical stores, um, and they ended up selling them and going online. But, you know, Ladbrokes, William Hill, Paddy Power um you know you name it those all that bet fred all those guys had stores and you know it's the 90s and knots came along somebody said we need a website and so um most people kind of came at it from the gambling entertainment retail perspective um 
that coupled with the fact that the barriers to entry compared to other industries are quite high, actually. Um, you know, if I start, you know, a very famous company is Slack, uh, which a lot of people are using now. You know, there are no regulatory hurdles to shipping Slack. I mean, you might have to deal with some esoteric privacy stuff, but, you know, you don't have to apply for a license in Ireland and a license in the UK and a license in the United States, et cetera, et cetera. And so if you go down most, you know, most crazy entrepreneurs, if, if they can start a business, you know, the deck is stacked so much against them. Why would you go into an industry that is riddled with regulation and laws and all these kinds of scary phrases like criminal liability and all these kinds of things? So the combination of the fact that historically, pretty much everybody in sports betting is kind of from that retail casino-y entertainment background and and there's very little innovation in the sense of you know kind of normal entrepreneurs wanting to get into the space without some otherwise connection to the industry and so i think that's probably the kernel of it secondly society um kind of beats up on sports betting a lot uh you know the ukgc and you know there's all these movements around responsible gaming and all this kind of stuff and and i i kind of i i applaud their intent you know i think it's a good idea to try to clean up the industry but what people miss and this is a very subtle but i think important point what people miss in sports betting is that a sports bet is nothing more than a math equation so you know if people think that sports betting is moral, that's tantamount to saying math is immoral. You know, a sport bet is nothing other than a contract of somebody changing money for the outcome of, of an event. Now, what becomes immoral is the price that people attach to it and some of the glitz and glam around around it, but there's nothing immoral about the underlying contract. It's a financial contract, um, like your question alludes to. But that said, because everybody's always thought about sports betting under this entertainment banner. People, um, people kind of dismiss it as it, you know, it's like a slot machine. Uh, you know, it's, it's not a slot machine. It's a math equation. It's dispassionate. Odds are dispassionate. And the, the application of the price is what becomes, um, uh, offensive. It's not the underlying act. So sorry if that was that was probably a little bit more of a long-winded explanation than you were looking for. But there's a lot of reasons why people haven't um, treated sports betting like an asset class. I, I think it'll get there over time because the market's going to consolidate around a few people and it's going to get bigger and bigger. And, and I think it'll it'll get there at some point. But uh, it's it's been a long road. So this idea that the events are the fundamentally – Underlying that is the mathematics around it. Is that do you do you expand that to not only sports but something like politics, where you know it's there's so many different variables. It's not a closed it's not a closed market or a closed system like you know blackjack or or a slot machine, for example. Or do you think that applies across the board? And if you give a in quotation marks fair price or a fair chance to someone, uh, then it is it is simply a game of mathematics. Well, casino games, uh, of course, are mathematics. I mean, um, you know. People people don't really uh, often realize this, but the whole study of probability and statistics came from French aristocrats that wanted to get an edge uh, with their card games and their in the parlor rooms and and you know all those things around probability and chance um, uh, were manifested very clearly in casino games. And then the you know like I said, the French mathematicians um, came up with a bunch of rules for it. So. You know, I think they're a little bit different animals. Obviously, it's, you know, in the sense of a sports bet, the technical term for a sports bet is a binary option, which basically means the you, you buy or sell the option and the option expires at zero or one. Um, there are binary options that are traded in finance. They're not extremely common, but they do happen. 
in traditional finance, I should say. Um, I'm not sure how I haven't thought that much about blackjack and poker and things like that. What kind of how you would think about a contract from a financial perspective. But uh, but yeah, there's math underlying any any kind of game of chance, any kind of any kind of trade of risk for money um, as a thought experiment. And this sometimes makes people uncomfortable, but essentially a sports bet is short-term insurance and, and normal insurance is kind of a long-term sports bet. You know, so if you're betting, if you buy homeowner's insurance and your house burns down, in effect, you're betting that your house is going to burn down and that if your house burns down, you quote unquote win your bet. And if you lose your bet, <laughs> if your house doesn't burn down, you lose your bet, which is your stake that you risked. Now, there are technical definitions of insurance, you know, the technical definition is there's an economic interest. Obviously, you own your house and you lose a lot of money. And you might not have an economic interest in Arsenal winning or losing unless you own the team. Um, but the mechanics of insurance are the same as the mechanics of a sports bet, uh, which which goes to show that you know the, the perception around the halo of sports betting is loaded with uh, f- false connotations, in my opinion. So you mentioned innovation, and I want to I want to ask a precursor to that. Now, you talked a little bit about retail sports betting and the entertainment of it, whether it's you know horse racing even and things like that over literally hundreds hundreds and hundreds of years. And mm-hmm. given the internet and the way it's moved to online in recent years, and you know with rapid effect, it, it's seemingly the early stages of online sports betting, online entertainment. But it seems like the the boundaries have been pushed out, and there's so much more possible. Do you think we're at the early stages of this? Yeah, I, I, in in a sense, I mean, like sports betting is no different than any other industry. I mean, when I was a kid, we we drove to the uh, video store and walked around the video store and argued about what to get, and you, you you know you'd have to rewind the VHS before you brought it back, and now you know in two seconds you can push a button on your remote and have a have a movie in front of you. Um, you know, so like the art of watching a movie is about a hundred years old. Uh, Netflix didn't reinvent that. They just took it to the next level. So I don't think, I don't think what we do from an innovation perspective is necessarily reinventing the wheel. It's just a kind of a classic example of technology making things cheaper, better, and faster. Um, in the case of sports betting, uh, there's been, you know, people make money from inefficiencies. And I know you've had a lot of professional bettors on the only way that they can make money is if the market's inefficient or they find the inefficient inefficiencies in the market. And just like any marketplace, uh, you know, you can think of the New York stock exchange or eBay or, you know, any kind of classic marketplace, the bigger it gets, the more the tech gets involved in general, the more efficient the market becomes. And, and what we are trying to do is be that conduit by which we make sports betting an order of magnitude more efficient. So the bet that we take on horse racing is no different than the bet that was taken 200 years ago in, you know, in Epson. Uh, it's just we can make it faster. We can do it cheaper. We can handle the settlement faster and, and uh, you know, basically make the market a lot more efficient. So talk to me about what you've learned about the efficiency of the markets over the last, say, 12 years. And obviously, you know, talking about a potentially – high volume, low margin product and and efficiency that comes with that. Have you found markets get more efficient or have they stayed largely the same? Or are we talking about a, on a, on a spectrum and things are sliding back and forth or how do you think about that over your time with markets? This predates me a little bit, but I remember reading some stories about before Betfair launched, uh, you know, all the online sports books, I think were 10, if not 15% over round. 
or 115 over round if you like. So that basically means for those of you that don't know what an over round is, if you convert all the odds to percentages in a mutually exclusive outcome, like let's say the winner of a horse race, and it were perfectly efficient, all the all the percentages would sum to 100. Now the most bookmakers, uh, I think in those days, sum to 115, maybe even more. Um, these days. You know, if you think about the overround as as roughly translating to the margin of the market, meaning how much the bookmaker is expected to make over time, the average margin in online sports betting in the UK is about seven to nine percent, sometimes higher, sometimes lower. Uh, the average margin, I was looking at the numbers in New Jersey, the average margin in sports betting in New Jersey was 6%, at least over the last nine months, something like that, give or take. Uh, so the markets certainly are a lot more efficient than when Betfair first started. You know, I imagine if you had a world without Betfair and the other exchanges in these markets, uh, you would see a lot higher overrounds. But I think Betfair kind of accelerated the uh, making the market a lot more efficient. Now, what happened was, I think in the late 2000s, Betfair kind of slowed their innovation. They didn't do very much, and they sort of became a generic gambling company and got away from the roots being a, you know, a fast-thinking uh, tech company or a sports tech company. And the markets kind of stagnated for like the last five, ten years. And uh, what we're really excited about, we're trying to move the market to a one to two percent margin product. And if you, you know, if you tell that to a traditional bookmaker, they'll look at you cross-eyed, like. Like it's not possible the way most book well I would say all bookmakers are set up to to survive even bet three six five which I think you know they they lean on their best price which is a little bit of a marketing gimmick I think they're still like a six seven percent margin product um, yeah so we're I mean we're trying to take it from six to one I mean that's a huge jump um, and one of the products we're excited about is the sports book that we're going to be launching soon which is which is targeting targeting one to two percent for the uh, the casual market yeah so tell me a little bit about that I was reading about SBK the sports book and yeah you know when you talk about one to two percent people can envision that on an exchange type offering yeah they probably cannot do that on a sports book or what they've been accustomed to over the years with a lot of the online sports books that are available so take us through the thought process and I know there's been a lot of discussion in different circles around which model will work best and it sounds like the 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 high volume low margin model itself is a very difficult one to achieve uh it well yeah it, it takes a lot of um experience and technology to get there but i think i think we're there so to the the genesis of sbk kind of took a while when i first started the company I, I i thought the reason people didn't use everybody didn't use betfair was because the interface was too complicated so the early early versions of smarkets we kind of took the interface and we kind of made some really simple you know kind of click here this is how much money you make kind of mechanics and then um you know i could go into a lot of detail but basically long story short the customers that uh, we ended up attracting wanted the more exchange-like interfaces and so we kind of built that built that built that and then we we basically dropped all pretense of being easy and decided to actually make markets more complicated um, so we're trying to actually be a more advanced platform than Betfair we think Betfair is too simple for advanced traders so that said because we kind of abandoned that simple approach because the market that wanted to use exchanges was quite educated quite you know they knew what they wanted they knew how to buy and sell we still thought we're leaving a huge amount of market share on the table um like as you as you rightly point out most bookmakers are i don't know six to nine percent margin and they're not most casual saturday punters are not going to uh 
you know, figure out how to use markets exchange. And so, uh, yeah, so I've kind of had this idea in the back of my head for, I want to say three or four years. And the fact that the American market started opening up, I kind of use that as an excuse to kind of, uh, start working on this prototype. We opened a Los Angeles office two years ago and we started building, um, SBK two years ago. And the really, what, what I think is clever, um, thing, which Betfair didn't do, which I think was a big mistake is basically we've built our sports book to be a client of our exchange. So for all intents and purposes, it, you are using the exchange if you use a sports book, but, uh, but it sits on top of it. And it's got some sportsbook-like features, but in general, it basically passes through to the exchange. So the way I like to use a financial metaphor is the exchange is the New York Stock Exchange. That's markets, and SBK is like Charles Schwab. You know, so most you know mom and pop investors are not not going to go to the specialists in the New York Stock Exchange to buy and sell their stock. Uh, most mom and pop are going to go through a broker like Charles Schwab or Fidelity or one of these big brokers. And, uh, you know, so it's basically a broker that sits on top of our exchange. So we get all the, the, the benefits of the exchange and we also get all the benefits of the sports book interface so we can marry the um, convenience factor and the, the form factor that Saturday punters want to see. And we can take all the superior pricing that we've built up over the last 10 years and, and bring it to a casual audience. What's the biggest challenge or, or impediment to making that successful and essentially overlaying a sportsbook interface and having everything channel through the exchange essentially? Uh, probably, you know, to oversimplify, I mean, a lot of things have to go right for that to be successful. But, you know, in general, the, the game in, in sports betting, to borrow another financial term, is order flow. It's basically trying to get the, you know, all the money in the industry from, you know, even the betting syndicates that make tens of, if not tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars, um, all that money comes from people losing 10, 20, 30 pounds. And they've found a way to try to get to the order flow, the retail order flow. And basically the game of winning sports betting from an operator perspective is trying to get as much organic, original order flow as possible. And so I, I think the biggest challenge for us is to get those Saturday punters switching over from Skybet, Bet365 to SBK. And uh, our success is going to be uh, how good are we at switching those uh, user behaviors. Or for in the case of New Jersey, FanDuel and DraftKings, you know, like what do we have to do to uh, to get in front of those customers and and get them excited and, and keep them to stay. So, are there any customer segments then in that world and in a, in a successful SBK plus exchange world that would be? Uh, and a, unable to to play in that marketplace, or does that? It sort of seems like a, a utopia where potentially everyone has a place in that in that market. Yeah, no, I mean we're trying to. I I don't know if I throw around the word utopia, but <laughs> you know I would like to think that we're creating the one platform that you know the world doesn't need right now. The UK, I would say, literally has two hundred platforms. You know, if you want to talk about liquidity fragmentation, duplication of effort, you know, you know, just like the financial industry tends to consolidate around a few exchanges, I think sports betting is going to end up consolidating around a few providers. You know, you can already see the GVC roll up and the Paddy Power Betfair merger and things like that. Um, you know, I think, uh, but we are trying to create the one platform that takes, uh, you know, takes sports betting into the next decade. And, and that means we cater to API customers, we cater to exchange customers, and we cater to casual bettors all in one place. Just briefly, do you mind touching on the tech build required behind this? It obviously seems like a 
pretty monumental task. You must have thousands of people all over the world from a programming technology background to be able to achieve this. <laughs> it's a very dangerous question to ask a geeky computer scientist. Uh, I can, I, <laughs> do you want to talk about Python 2 versus Python 3? I'm sure uh, plenty uh, do. <laughs> well, excellent question. I've been I've been dying to talk about our tech stack. Um, we're, our company's a lot smaller than you might think it is. Uh, we're 120 people right now. Um, you know, so it's been it's, it's gone through the various iterations of the technology stack. But you know, the core of the company's been built. With 50, 60 engineers, I want to say across. Now we have three offices, but um, you know, for a while we only had two offices: Malta and London. And now we have Malta, London, and uh, Los Angeles. And yeah, the uh, we think we have the best tech stack in the world. Um, it's a little bit of a punchy statement, but I I don't think we're far from the truth. Um, that's far from the truth. The other thing I would say is, you know, we own our own tech stack, which which for most industries um, seems quite of an obvious thing to say, but most sports betting providers white label critical components, um, you know, from other places, which makes them slow, makes them uh, homogenous. You know, if you if you go into Patty Power and William Hill and Skybet's bookmaking sites, they they have some unique features, but in general, the core is all the same, and that's because they're all powered by OpenBet, and and it's quite a unique feature that we own our whole stack from, you know, the event management to the exchange management to the front end to the, you know, the odds, uh, you know, from top to bottom, we, we've built the whole thing, for better or for worse, um, but now I think it puts us in an amazing position to... Uh, to be extremely competitive against the big boys. So I want to hone in a little bit on price, and we've talked a little bit about it, but I want to ask, obviously technology is hugely important, mm-hmm. but price seems to be one of the, the major factors, and most people can go on numerous different websites depending where they are and have access to odds on a million different things, and the odds will, like you said, hover around you know 106 to 108% or something like that, and you're talking about... 101, 102, or 103%. Mm-hmm. How critically important is that from your perspective? It seems like a pretty dumb question. Obviously, price matters, but from your experience with your customers and, and over the time, how valuable is it to be so close to 100% versus being at 107%, for, for example? Yeah, I, 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 th- I think it's important to some people. Obviously, some people won't care. It's like any market, you know, like whether you're buying plane tickets or you're buying televisions or. You know, like when I buy a TV, I, I research the crap out of the market, look at all the reviews, try to find a, a good price. You know, like I'm kind of a crazy TV consumer, you know, but if you take my parents, you know, they're not going to go to the level of research, uh, you know. So just like sports betting, you know, some people are going to hunt for that great deal and, and some people are not going to be that fussed. What what we're trying to do is kind of like an EasyJet strategy. You know, when EasyJet first launched, they were quite a no-frills, you know, sort of not a great experience airline compared to British Airways. You know, British Airways, would, you had meals and drinks and it was, had this kind of posh vibe. And uh, EasyJet came along, they have orange stale seats or Ryanair, whatever you like. And, you know, eventually 10, 20% of the market kind of switched because they're like, eh, whatever, I just want to get from point A to point B and I'm happy to pay 70 pounds return to fly to Rome, no problem, I don't need a drink. And then what you saw was, you know, the airlines had a choice where basically they could keep their prices expensive and, and lose this revenue increasingly to these discount airlines or they could drop their service. Now you saw, well, you 
you don't see you you haven't so it's not past tense you see british airways has to cut and cut and cut and cut to be competitive with ryanair and british airways now now when you fly to rome in in some cases arguably uh you get better service on easyjet than you would on british airways now what i think happened was that easyjet and and ryanair were able to capture that maybe 10 20% maybe 30% of the market they were extremely price sensitive didn't really care um and and wanted to kind of get on with it but they weren't able to not do anything because then you know they would keep losing market share to these price conscious customers i think the same thing will happen in sports betting you know i don't think 100% of the market is on odds checker looking for the best price at all times but i bet you 10% of the market's looking for the best price and you know if if we're able to take 10% market share in a 2.6 billion pound market that's not a bad place to be but also i think the 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 where things become very interesting is if we take 10% from bet365 10% from skybet 10% from paddy power this is obviously a, a very optimistic scenario but it's it's the one i'm going for uh they're going to have to react and they will either have to be comfortable with uh losing all that market share and just kind of keeping on and hoping that the remaining customers stay or they have to make their prices more competitive. Now when those companies make their prices more competitive that's when things become interesting because unlike airplane tickets and in, in sports betting there's something called arbitrage. So as markets get closer to 0% margin it's the arbitrage opens up and up and up and these big bookmakers are not built for high frequency trading they're not built for low margin high volume business and so the reason why our exchange is such a an advantage is we basically have an army of customers is that if these if these companies do get better prices our army of customers are are going to hit them when their prices are wrong so not only are they going to make less money when as you bring your margin closer to 0% but they're going to get when they have a mispricing they're going to get hit a lot harder so it's it's a very interesting i think um place for us to be competitively um like like i said we don't need the whole market right now like 10% would make a huge dent in uh in the in the industry for now it sounds like those others then are incentivized not to lower their prices because it, if you play it out to the end they know what's going to happen they're eventually going to be hit with arbitrage and they're going to have other issues and probably lose more market share to the better tech stack that's ability to handle the high frequency stuff and ultimately keep getting cut down is that fair to say uh I think you could game theory it like that, but most you know most of those companies are publicly traded, and most publicly traded companies have to show growth at all costs. Um, you know that's kind of the uh, the downside of having professional CEOs at, of publicly traded companies. So I I think that they would have to react. I don't think that they would have the foresight of saying we need to keep our margins high, we need to stay uncompetitive. I think most people would chase the prices, but but they very well could take that uh, perspective. Okay, and what about that uh, outcome for you, but a, a less uh, optimistic or less successful where there's lower volume? Is there a, a minimum volume you need to be able to run the type of thing where SBK is sort of overlaid with the exchange, or have you thought that through uh, around what the optimum volume level is other than a lot? Uh, no, to be honest, it doesn't matter that much. You, you know, uh, like it's all about order flow. You know, I don't really care if a customer wants to come through SBK or the exchange or the API. What I do want is the order flow. Um, so there, there isn't a minimum amount that would SBK would need to be successful. And tell me about direct competitors, like other exchanges or others trying to copy the exact same thing. Is that something you would welcome and the overall ability for 
exchanges to thrive, or do you think that if there's one or two exchanges in the marketplace plus the the others that are one hundred seven percent sports books is uh, is the marketplace that you expect? Um, I, of course, I would welcome competition. You know, one of the things that uh, that's really important to me. You know, I kind of came at this from the fintech geek angle. I th- I think efficient markets are you know just in general not only in sports betting are important you know like if there's technology that helps people save money why wouldn't you want to do it whether it's cheaper delivery fees or cheaper milk or uh you know cheaper school fees whatever you can do to make things cheaper that that's the point of a progress in an economy and in a society and not to get too philosophical but it's much more important to me that sports betting becomes efficient than markets is successful. So, you know, if somebody else beats me to it, you know, I will tip my hat and fair play to them. Uh, I want this market to be efficient, whether I do it or somebody else does it. I think it's really important. Sports betting is a massive, massive, massive uh, enterprise around the world. And if you think that these operators are making 8% uh, and they're not doing that much to get that, to make that much money, it's, it's, uh, it, it feels like a bit of a, an injustice. It feels like you're basically ripping people off that don't understand the math about sports betting. And, uh, you know, I would encourage my competitors to get more price sensitive and I would encourage uh, people to be doing the same business plan that we're doing so that, you know, customers obviously get the fair shake. Now, that said, I think most of the people in the industry, like I are they're from the entertainment background, they're from the, the casino world. Um, they're from the let's make as much money from these customers as we can world. They're not from that philosophical point of view of I want to make this efficient. And, and I think that's why Smarkets is a company that the, the world needs right now in order to succeed. But I would, like I said, very much uh, encourage everybody else to do it. Now, in terms of other exchanges, Betfair launched a sports book, I, I think it was like three or four years ago. But the huge mistake that Betfair made is they use a white label for the sports book. I think it's powered by a company called Amelco. Uh, but basically, their, 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 their sports book is, for all intents and purposes, just the Betfair logo slapped on some standalone sports book. It's not connected to their exchange. Um, uh, and and they they of course they monetized at the higher uh, GGR the gross gaming revenue uh, that you get with the sports book and they made money and the the you know the public CEO gets celebrated and the stock goes up a little bit which is great but uh, they're not they didn't really advance the mission of making sports betting high volume low margin um, which is which is what I think will happen and I think it's important to happen. Can it work in the United States market, given it's a patchwork of different states legalizing under different regulatory regimes? Yeah, I think it's going to take a while for, you know, America is a little bit, even though I'm speaking as an American, I think we're a little bit uh, <laughs> underdeveloped when it comes to sports betting. It's quite it's, it's quite a shame, um, you know, America is not a perfect country by any means, but I think America will kind of catch up. I think it'll take five to 10 years before we have reasonable laws in sports betting, but I think we'll get there eventually. Now, in terms of exchanges, um, it might be tricky because there's a law called the Wire Act. So it's kind of dependent on the Wire Act getting repealed. But I think you can deploy high volume, low margin sports books in the individual states and, and get a lot of the benefits that SBK brings in the UK to uh, to an American audience. What if someone came to you and said, I want to essentially, what you're doing with SBK, do it with my sports book. It might be a smaller sports book or a collection of sports books, or you want to acquire different sports books to add that volume. Would you do something like that in the future? 
I, I mean, I would argue we already have that. We have an API that you know people could. We don't have any operators yet, but we have an API where technically somebody could build their own sportsbook on top of our API. So that that definitely is possible. Um, uh, and and under the right circumstances, um, I would definitely welcome it. This idea of market makers, and a lot of people have been talking recently, if there was to be a, an exchange in the US, there would need to be a lot of market makers in local jurisdictions. What type of challenge does that pose? Ah, we've, we've, uh, we've gotten this whole podcast without talking about that. So one of the things that I tried to do early doors in the, in the UK was I went to all the, not all the big betting, I went to a lot of the big betting syndicates, and I said, will you market make on my platform? I don't want to take any risk. And they all kind of said, yeah, yeah, but you're so small. Um, it's not really worth our time. Come back when you're bigger. And so, you know, I did that for a couple of years. And while I was doing that, I was like, well, shoot, we need liquidity while we're building our platform. I used to be a trader. Why don't we just hack something together? And so basically we put together um, this market maker that was designed to break even. It wasn't designed to make money. And then over the years, the syndicate still didn't want to integrate, and uh, our market maker got better and better. So one of our sister companies of our exchange is called Hansen, um, and we we think we're the world's largest sports market maker right now. And so a lot of the quotes you will see on markets are our quotes, not all of them. Uh, we do have an open API. I think we have 50 API clients right now. So when you place a bet, you may match us. You may match another API client. You may match another customer but uh one of our secret weapons is that we have our own market maker so uh going to different states doesn't really matter because we can just uh provide liquidity where we need to provide the liquidity and then in terms of commissions i know uh some friends back in australia have had some challenges in recent times with changes in commissions how is that going to apply certainly in the u.s and i guess just looking forward do you think commissions are, are trending downward or do you think there's a, a little bump in the road Oh no! I mean, I, I I don't know how you get to zero, but I want it to trend towards zero. Um, no, I think I think I I wouldn't think about it transaction fees uh, by themselves. I would think about the net price that a punter is paying. So transaction fee plus the bid offer spread. Uh, so I see the the net odds, if you like, or the net fee uh, trending towards zero. It can never be zero. Um, because there always has to be a cost to the trade, but it can be pretty close to zero. So I, I, I think things will keep trending in that direction. So I want to talk a little bit more generally now about this industry, and I guess you've learned a lot probably over the last decade. What sort of advice would you have those, A, who are looking at the exchange world or the peer-to-peer world, especially in the U.S. market, and B, just generally for those looking to get into this, uh, this world of exchanges or sports betting across the U.S.? Uh, well, there aren't that many exchanges, sadly. I mean, some of that is just the the market's a lot smaller than retail sportsbooks. There's four major exchanges in the UK, and I think there's some black market exchanges in India and, and Asia. Um, so either you could create your own. Um, I wouldn't recommend it because it takes a lot longer than you might think to create the technology. It's quite complicated. Uh, but I'm, I'm sure all four of us are hiring in the UK. Um, as far as I know, there aren't any exchanges besides markets um, and Betfair in the United States, but that might be subject to change. Um, but we're hiring, you know, I think Matchbook and BetDeck are hiring, and I'm, I'm pretty sure Betfair is hiring for the exchange. So I would just go onto the career websites of those companies and, and see what we're hiring for. Smartcus generally only hires engineers. We do hire business people from time to time, but we tend to be, you know, our company is two-thirds technical. So um, we do uh, more often than not want somebody to have a degree in computer science uh, to work at Smartcus, but we do have non-computer scientists and uh, we do hire them as well. 
And what about 15 years from now? How do you think things will look across the globe? Do you think it will truly be a global marketplace in every sense of the word? So one of um, uh, I, I know you're based in New York, but are you, are you familiar with Revolut or Monzo or any company like that or TransferWise? Yep. So when I first moved to the UK uh, and I got my first investment, um, uh, some of our investors were based in the United States and, and the round was, I think, $200,000. And I needed to convert $200,000 into sterling to set up the company. And uh, I, our bank was with NatWest and – if you just did it with their vanilla interface, I think it would take 3% to do the FX um, translation. Uh, but they had this facility that I'm sure many people didn't use, but you could call up a trader and negotiate with them. And then you could kind of get it down to like 2%. And I was just thinking like, this is the worst thing. You know, Not only do most people not understand the, the fee, the implicit fee that they're paying with this transaction rate but uh you know they're trying to make it hard for the customer to to do this transaction now fast forward to to now you have companies like revolute where where i use my um where i do my fx with them they almost give you fx at spot which means it's almost close to zero percent fee and to go in 10 years from paying three percent almost universally to almost zero percent now it's just phenomenal. And, you know, it's not reinventing the wheel. It's just using basic technology to give customers a better service. So the reason I'm giving that example is I hope in 15 years that sports betting is not west to revolute in the sense of, you know, we're William Hill to markets. Uh, we have extremely tight prices. It's not we're not trying to bamboozle the customer with bonuses or casinos or crazy advertising. It's just a great service, and uh, if you want to place a bet, you get as good as odd it's, as are mathematically possible, and and the consumer um, you know places the trade at a at a great price. A little different to ele- electronic trades on Prodigy back in the day. <laughs> the same idea it's just uh you know little by little it gets faster and cheaper and better back when i was trading i think it cost oh my god this is 25 years ago now but i think it cost i want to say 20 dollars a trade i think it was 20 dollars a trade wow and i remember my grandfather you know my grandfather would literally trade stocks he wouldn't trade he would buy like 100 shares over the phone his broker charge and this was like at the same time he just didn't want to use a computer his broker charged him a hundred dollars so this would have been like late 90s brokers were still charging a hundred dollars to place a trade a small trade and you know you fast forward from that to robin hood and you know it's free now um you know like it's for the and and for the better you know the the Everything should get cheaper, better, and faster over time. That's that's the whole point of our society. So let's do that in sports betting. Sounds good. Sounds good. Jason, thank you very much for your time. It's a pleasure to chat to you. Just before I let you go, best way for people to get into contact with you or, or Smarkets? Can they, can oh, they yeah. tweet or what's what's the best? Yeah, you can tweet me at Jason Trost. Uh, you can also you're free, feel free to send me an email if you like, uh, Jason at Smarkets.com. I'm happy to uh, answer emails, but uh, Twitter's uh, absolutely fine. Awesome. Thank you very much for your time. I truly appreciate it. Okay. Thanks very much for having me on. 